Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be with you today and looking at Numbers 21. So we are nearing the end of our wilderness epic. In fact, I think this is actually going to be the last story from this part of the scripture. Next week, we've got one that's kind of capping off the section, and it's but it's from, I think, First Peter. So... This will be probably our last time directly visiting the wandering Israelites, and they're not going to go down without some complaining, as we have become so accustomed to, as they've been just right on the lip of the promised land. The complaints have mounted. So remember Moses, uh, last week we found out uh, because Moses was disobedient to God, and that disobedience kind of took the form of him taking credit for himself in some ways and acting out in anger toward the people on God's behalf when he was not supposed to. Um, He was not going to be allowed into the promised land. So we got that unfortunate news for Moses. Uh, Well, last week we actually talked about Easter, which is not unfortunate news at all. But two weeks ago, the last one in this this epic that we've been in with the wilderness, that's what we talked about. Last week we did talk about Easter and Jesus' resurrection and hope you had a good Easter and enjoyed celebrating and time with family. But now we're back to the complaining Israelites, so they've still got a long way till Jesus in this chronology. So, But the people are coming to the end of their wandering in the wilderness. They're just right there on the cusp. Um, but, you know, again, before we get out of this section, we're going to get a little bit more complaining from the Israelites. Surprise, surprise. So uh, in Numbers chapter 21, starting in verse 4, it says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So um, the reason that they are... um, running around this way, why it says that they've taken this path is uh, previously in the chapter, they tried to uh, gain Edom's favor to pass through on the highway and Edom told them no and came out with an army to stop them. Uh, Edom, if you remember, is the nation that is descended from Esau, the brother of Jacob, who, of course, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So they are very closely related people groups. However, Edom was not having it. And so the people kind of suffered a setback of sorts of frustration and so they're going on this different path possibly one reason that they're a little testy here but the people of course begin to complain again i i don't think there's really much more to say about their complaining um it's kind of past the point of ridiculous how much complaining has gone on i know we're looking at like four years or whatever but it's getting a little old not not only that they're complaining about Egypt still. Again, it's been 40 years. So, I mean, in all likelihood, there's at least some people complaining that are in this group that are, you know, pro-Egypt party that maybe had never even lived in Egypt. Some of them, a lot of them may have been born in the wilderness. It's not like we get a demographic here of what age people are the ones complaining, but I just have to assume at least some of them were people that maybe never even lived in Egypt And the people that did live in Egypt hadn't for 40 years and were probably in their 60s, 70s. Um, We know that the cutoff for the the generation that was going to die in the wilderness was about 20. So um, that kind of 
gives you an idea of maybe how old some of the oldest would have been. So around maybe 60, maybe not even up to 70. But they complain, of course. And I, I think it's important too, before we get just too tired of watching the Israelites complain and grumble all the time, there is a purposefulness in how many stories there are about the grumbling and complaining. It's not like God was forgot to uh, edit his book and was like, oh no, I mentioned the grumbling and the complaining too many times. Like, no, it's purposeful. And I think that being frustrated by it is something that we should be experiencing. I think frustration is one of the things that should come to mind for us, but that frustration should have the consequence of causing us to look at the state of our own hearts. So when we see the constant grumbling and complaining of the Israelites, what it should be is kind of a mirror for us to look into to kind of examine the state of our own hearts. So something to keep in mind as monotonous and repetitive these stories of their grumbling and complaining get, I think that we can see in our own lives the same monotony of grumbling and complaining. So I think that as we have look back at the grand picture of all of that, that it should be a time for us to kind of check ourselves a little bit. So this time, we get the common, no, we don't have any food, we don't have any water. This time they're specifically complaining about the manna. So you remember they're wandering in the wilderness and God supernaturally provided this food for them. And they are complaining about it. They said, we loathe this worthless food. So they said, we hate it. We're so sick of all this food you've provided for us. It's the same thing. To be fair, I think eating the same exact thing for 40 years could get old, but still, there's, I don't, I guess I want the wonder not to be lost on them that they are still being provided with this miraculous food after 40 years. But the manna now, uh, they were hungry one time early on and they got this manna and they were really excited about it and God gave them all these ways they could cook it and then the quail as well. But now it is not good enough for them. They regard it as nothing. Because remember, even before they say that, that the food is worthless, they say there is no food, almost like a total disregard of the fact that the manna is there. And then they say, this food we do have, it's worthless and we hate it. So that's kind of where they're at. And they're complaining. It says they spoke against God and against Moses. Pretty typical. Should have learned their lesson. This time they uh, are going to get a pretty swift uh, and severe punishment. So in verse 6, it says this. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So I don't know if it's partially to do with the fall of Moses in the last chapter or what, but Moses here really kind of taking much more of a backseat. He's kind of like a little side character here. Um, and things are just kind of happening around him in some ways. Not to say that he didn't say more that's just not mentioned here, but um, the response from God is pretty immediate and, like I said, severe. Um, these serpents come and bite a bunch of people. So it says fiery serpents. Um, it most likely des describes the nature of the sensation from the bite. So um, probably felt like a burning sensation when they were bitten from the venom. And that this venom was uh, obviously strong enough that many people died. So um, 
there weren't snakes of fire um, running around in the wilderness in case anybody was concerned about that. But they did come and many of the people died. And really without any sort of necessary intervention, at least that's mentioned here from Moses, the people decide they are going to repent. It's like they came up with it on their own. It's like they finally maybe are learning a lesson. It's amazing. But they recognize what they did. They recognize to whom they did it, recognizing that it was against God and against Moses. Very mature. Um, and then they also recognized who could fix it. So they said, uh, we know the deal, Moses. We ask you and you ask God and God fixes things. And so Moses prays for the people. So there you go. The people are learning. They're evolving. Not to the point where they won't grumble and complain first, but they're getting better at apologizing, I guess. So then verses 8 and 9 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So in response to Moses' prayer on behalf of the people that they would be delivered, God tells Moses to make a snake. And that anyone who'd been bitten could look on this snake and be healed of the venom from that bite. So there's this kind of strange paradox that's set up here. So the image of the snake is what is going, looking on that image in, in faith. Now, mind you, any, any person who would have looked upon this snake as a way to heal them would have had to do so out of faith because again, there's not any sort of merit apart from a miracle of God that this would actually help you against a snake bite either in, you know, 3000 years ago time or in our time, nobody would say looking at a bronze snake is going to make you better from a snake bite. So there, when they look upon this snake, they, this is an act of faith. So the paradox is they look upon the image in faith. They look upon the image of this snake and the image is of a snake that had bitten them. And that, that's what actually saves them. So it's this kind of interesting paradox that's set up that I'm going to look on the image of the thing that harmed me, and then I'm going to get better. So it's kind of interesting. And then I think it's also strange, and I think you probably do too, that God would have them like have an image to look upon. So we think about, obviously, back when they were worshiping the golden calf and how God was very angry and that that was a great uh, rebellion against God, a great mistrust of who God was for them to make for themselves a golden calf that they would worship. And so now we have this other opportunity uh, where the an image is made for them to look upon and it to be their salvation. I, I honestly, you half expect to read this story and find out that afterwards they started worshiping the bronze snake, just knowing the fickleness of the people. But so it's interesting. And obviously this one's different from the uh, calf too, in that God specifically commanded Moses to make it. Whereas the golden calf was all the people's idea and they coerced Aaron into making it. So it wasn't the same, but I did think it was interesting. And that was, I think what stood out to me most about the story reading it is that this image of a snake looking upon that would be what would save them from this judgment. That would be God's grace toward them, his mercy toward them, even in the midst of their sin. 
So I think the question kind of remains unanswered until we get, you know, several hundred years later and we see this, John 3, 14, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Stop me if you've heard this one before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so Jesus himself is going to compare himself to this bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. Very interesting. So the bronze snake story points to Jesus' death on the cross. So the people in Numbers, remember, as we just talked about, were sick, and they look upon this bronze snake in faith, and it heals them. And the paradox, of course, being they're looking on the image of the thing that hurt them. But now we go to the part where Jesus enters in. We look upon the work of Jesus in faith, his thinking specifically of his work on the cross as we think about him being lifted up. Then we also can think too of his ascension. We can think of his resurrection. All of those are kind of ideas of him being lifted up. Um, the cross being kind of literally the resurrection being from the dead, he's lifted up back to life. And then also the ascension going from earth back into, into heaven. So we see him being lifted up kind of in multiple ways. Um, but when we look upon the work of Jesus in faith, we're healed. And the paradox here is that it's by his wounds, by his death, that we receive healing, that we receive life. So the paradox is kind of flip-flopped here in that, It's him taking the wounds that we are healed by. It's him dying and we receive life. So instead of looking on the image of the one who hurt them, like in numbers, we look upon the image of the one who is hurt on our behalf and we are the ones who receive healing. So this, I think the question of this image being raised up in the wilderness really uh, doesn't probably come to full sense for us as people who know that God desires that we avoid graven images. I don't think we really get a full clarity of focus of that until we see Jesus proclaim that he is the, he is like the serpent that was raised in the wilderness. And when we see that by looking upon him in faith, that he is the one who brings healing, the one who brings life. So, when we see the bronze serpent story, it's it's a very short story. I mean, we've already made it through and talked quite a bit about it. Six verses. It's very short. It, it's very, uh, I guess, we've kind of had similar lessons before. This story, honestly, for the Gospel Project may not have made the cut. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus is going to help interpret this story for us in an even more meaningful way when we look on who he is. So... As we get to the kind of toward the end of this uh, this section where we're talking about the Israelites' um, disobedience in the wilderness, some things that we can think of for some application and even some things that we can think about in this story specifically is well, the first application point is that sometimes it's God's greatest gifts that we can come to complain about the most. Sometimes it's God's greatest gifts 
that we complain about the most. So remember, the people had gotten this miraculous gift of manna in the wilderness, and that was now what they've come to complain about. They say, we have no food. This food is worthless. And as I thought about it, I was like, how could they take something that is so clearly a wonderful gift, something they so clearly needed and wanted, and how can they now turn on it and complain about it? And then without breaking a sweat, I thought about um, if you're married, a spouse, uh, if you have kids, kids, parents, your home, your job, maybe even your church of things that we complain about, that looking back at the time before we had these people and these communities or these jobs or homes, how much we desired them, how much we recognized that they were God's gift to us when it seemed new and everything seemed maybe really easy. But as time goes on, naturally, we are just a a people that are bent to complain and grumble about things. So people, you know, will go long periods of their lives hoping to find a a spouse that um, will love them, will love God, will want to be a parent with them. Um, But a lot of times a spouse can become the person that we complain about the most. And the things we see the most to nitpick in is a spouse when there was a time when we recognized what a great gift from God they were. Kids, some people have, you know, longed for kids for decades. And when you have kids and you recognize them as this great gift, but then sometimes they become the thing that you want to grumble and complain about the most. And the same with Maybe your own parents, um, your home, maybe it's it seemed great at first and now you're like, oh, I hate the backyard or, oh, we need to get that fixed or, oh, I don't like this neighborhood, a, a job. Maybe you were really excited for how God was providing through giving you this job, but now you just can only seem to pick out the negative things about the job and you're tired of the job. And maybe even in your church, you were so glad to find a great community of believers and enjoyed the worship. But then after being there a while, you found all the things that were wrong with it. And I don't want to pretend that these people and occupations and homes and churches don't, that we don't have legitimate gripes with them at times. Um, Our spouse, we hurt our spouses, our spouses hurt us. Same with kids, same with parents, same with churches, same with our job, same with our home. So there's legitimate challenges that come with all those relationships and places. But at the same time, I think that it's these things that we know are so important that we can find ourselves after a period of time starting to grumble and complain about the most, just like the people complained about the manna as great a gift as it was. Dennis Cole, who wrote the uh, commentary on numbers that I've been using throughout this, uh, this study, says, when a person's heart is intent on rebellion and beset by discontent, even the best of gifts from the Lord can lose their savor Nothing will fully satisfy until the heart is made right. This grumbling and complaining issue is really not an issue of what God has given us, but it's an issue of our own hearts, an issue of our own discontent, an issue of our own, I think think he said it well, rebellion. There's a, a rebellion in us that says, I deserve more. I deserve better. I deserve different things that our hearts can be tempted to desire, even when we should be recognizing these things as wonderful gifts. 
sometimes it's these greatest gifts that God gives us that we come to complain about the most. And that's an opportunity for us to examine our own hearts and to, uh, I know for me, as I think about it, to be convicted about the things that I complain about and how the things that I complain about are rooted in my discontent with a really great gift that God has given. And recognizing that that says a lot more about me than the gift that God has given. So the second application that I want us to think about here as we finish up is this recognition that looking on Jesus gives us the contentment and gratitude that affects all our grumblings. So when we're able to look on Jesus, look at him as the one who is wounded so we could be healed, as the one who died so that we could receive life, that should be the the root of all the contentment and gratitude that we have of all the great gifts that God has given us. That being, of course, the ultimate gift that God has given, the opportunity to be reconciled to him through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Because without that gift, these other gifts are in in and of themselves, there is an emptiness to them. Because if we are pursuing uh, our our spouse, our kids, our own parents, uh, a, a home, a job, a church, apart from who Jesus is, then we're not pursuing them fully in the way that we should be. So looking on Jesus, looking at what he did on our behalf is what gives us the contentment and gratitude that should start to ease the grumblings and complainings against these good gifts that God has given over time. And obviously, again, there's going to be, there's legitimate times to say, hey, this is not okay with our spouse, our kids, whomever. But at the same time, we should have toward these great gifts, because that's what they are, a heart of gratitude and contentment, recognizing that God has provided for us wonderfully, and that if he has provided it, then that is what he's had for us. And instead of wishing for more or wishing for different, we can instead enjoy the things that he's given us. So I hope that as we are kind of winding down this era of biblical history, and we move into other issues, which, uh, spoiler, um, once we get into Joshua and Judges, there's going to be a lot more cyclical stuff. So don't get ready for some fresh new lesson every week. But I hope that as we finish this specific era of the grumbling and the complaining, that we can be reminded that we are the grumblers and we are the complainers in the story. But to be able to hopefully look at it from a third party perspective and and see the good that was before them and to see the difficulties that were in front of them as minor in comparison. And then I hope we can translate that into our own lives and that we can be able to see the great gifts, the wonderful provision that God has had at the forefront as the most important. And instead of grumbling and planning that we can have contentment and gratitude in our hearts. Mm -hmm.